You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Daphne Richmond Barak. Dr. Richmond Barak is an assistant professor at the Louder School of Government, Diplomacy, and Strategy and heads the International Law Desk of the International Institute for Counterterrorism, ICT. Most important to the podcast, she is the author of the book Underground Warfare, and she started the International Working Group on Subterranean Warfare. To me, without question, she is one of, if not the, leading academics in the world of subterranean or underground warfare. Dr. Richmond Barak, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So if you don't mind, I always ask kind of a general question up front. So I thought I'd ask you a general question about underground warfare is how is it defined? What does it really mean? And does the word underground warfare and subterranean warfare, is there any differences or is that just interchangeable different ways of saying it? Um, so first of all, thank you, John, for having me on this podcast. Uh, I am very, very pleased to do this with you. And um, I know you also enjoy particularly the topic of underground warfare and you've greatly contributed to the field uh, as well, so it's just uh, it's just a great pleasure. So let me let, yeah let me say a few things about perhaps terminology or what it is that we're talking about. Um, we're talking about the use of underground spaces, right? Spaces that are fully underground, fully below ground, and we're talking about they are used mostly in time of war. But I think you know in some of the aspects we also have to consider the use of these structures that are below ground in time of peace or in a law enforcement slash counterterrorism context. There are different kinds of tunnels. And I think here it's important to say that when I say underground warfare or tunnel warfare or subterranean warfare, I I am talking pretty much about the same thing, right? We're talking about two possible types of structures, mostly those that are man-made underground structures or those that are natural, natural structures like caves, right? That are below ground or that are a combination of above ground and below ground. But what we're not talking about, or at least the part that I'm not focusing on in my own research, is two things. First of all, the trenches, right? The trenches where you are partly above ground, partly below ground, but your head is essentially breathing the regular air. This is something that I'm not focusing on because it's not a confined space in the same way. And another thing that I that I think is fascinating, it, it has relevance for, for underground warfare, but it's not the focus of my own research, is deeply buried facilities, the kind of facilities that are built by states and many states that are highly reinforced, very sophisticated, that are meant to support the state in case of a nuclear war or to, you know, protect decision makers in in a time of a major crisis. So those are also underground, but they are less related, I think, to what we're going to talk about today. No, that's great. That's great clarification. So I know it's underground warfare from my own studies, and I, I still consider you one of the leading experts globally. But hasn't it been around for a long time? Hasn't underground warfare been around as far back as you know, Roman times, the, the Battle of Jericho, medieval warfare under under the castles, even Vietnam War, your famous books like the Tunnels of Coochie? So what's new? So, so this is a good question. What's new? And, and, and I hear I think that before we even talk about tunnel, we need to, to take a look at how warfare has changed uh, in general, right? What we see, the trends that we that we witness in modern warfare in general is a, a trend towards more and more sophistication, more and more technology. And we also see another trend, which is uh, that of sophisticated, militarily sophisticated and capable states fighting against groups that are much less sophisticated than them, such as Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, and others. So what we see is this trend of asymmetric warfare between highly sophisticated states and much less sophisticated groups. And so when we 
are within this context, it's, I think, easier to understand what is new or also why it is it why is it even popular. It's not new in and of itself, but it has gained in popularity and in the appeal of underground warfare has grown in, in recent years as states have become more and more performant in terms of their ISR, ISR capabilities, right? So as states become more performant, and it's impossible for uh, the enemies to recreate some kind of symmetry, right? To neutralize the advantage, the military advantage that these states have over them, then they go underground. And this is what is new, right? The use of the underground terrain as an equalizer between two highly unequal opponents. It's not entirely new, but there is an element of creativity that has characterized underground warfare in recent years. We see also a growing cooperation among the various groups, right, whether it is Hamas and the rebels in Syria. And in fact, the war in Syria in and of itself marked a turning point, I think, in the history of contemporary tunnel warfare. And perhaps another thing that I can add here is that I think is also remarkable and and defines these contemporary times and contemporary tunnel warfare is that the digging Right. The use of tunnels is appealing for the reasons I ex- explained, but it also continues even as the technology continues to improve. Right, The counter-tunneling technology improves, and yet we see the groups continuing to invest time and resources in, in digging tunnels. So I think there are some interesting question marks here as to why is it this way, right? Why does the, pop- the popularity rise? Why does the appeal continue even as the states that are capable of developing these counter-technologies are improving in their detecting and neutralizing capabilities. No, I agree. I understand the historical kind of pushback to underground warfare on, you can point to it across time, or even the American Civil War. But yeah, the, the, there has been a change because the frequency has intensified for many reasons. And I usually use the same one with the ISR and the aerial strike capability even with your ISR assets, has pushed it underground. And you have to listen to the character of warfare. If it's predominantly across all these different spectrums, across all these different countries, there is a change as in it's not saying it's the return of underground warfare, but it's definitely returned in popularity, like you said. It's not really return. It was always there. But what we what we see really is it, it is now featured since 9-11, right? For the last two decades, we really see elements of underground warfare in virtually every conflict that has been going on since then. So it's not always the same tunnels. It's not always for the same purpose. But the underground terrain in and of itself as a strategic location is definitely growing in popularity. And I think this is this is the key here, right? We see more diffusion of the tactic and we see new patterns of diffusion and we see new patterns of innovation. So yes, something is definitely new. Right. So, you know, I'm always interested in the convergence of urban warfare and underground warfare, because I think there's a lot of similarities on why warfare continues to be pushed further into the urban space and further underground. For you as an underground warfare specialist, how does that intersection work? How does underground warfare and urban warfare meet? So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, we could talk about this forever for a long time, but let me let me try to highlight perhaps a, a few things. First of all, what we see in recent years is a shift, like we can look at the trends and what we see is that underground warfare, which used to be prominent, right, rather prominent or used whenever it was used, it was used in mountainous, non-urban areas, right? It was used in the mountains of Mali. It was used heavily in Afghanistan in two successive wars. And what we see in recent years is that this trend, much like warfare, again, in general, is moving closer to urban areas. And that is one aspect. Another aspect is that 
the challenges that states, right, that militaries encounter in urban warfare, and, and of course you are a specialist in that, you know the extent of that complexity, those challenges also exist in underground warfare when it meets the urban world, and they are magnified. They are even more difficult to overcome when urban meets uh, subterranean. So that's something that we see not only that underground warfare is following the broader trend of urban warfare, which I think is important to, to note, but we also see that the dilemmas, the challenges that are likely to be faced and that states already face in those situations, when civilians are around, it's a totally different ballgame. There's definitely a convergence of the two, and this, is, uh, this convergence is particularly concerning. So for me, as the urban warfare guy, the interesting intersection between underground warfare and urban warfare is that you don't find many urban areas, especially major urban areas, without a labyrinth of already underground structures built. You have subway tunnels, transportation hubs, infrastructure tunnels, sewer tunnels, you name it. I mean, because of the just the development of cities around the world, you have to go vertical because of population density, and you have to go underground for many reasons. Plus, many of, especially ancient cities, already have a labyrinth of underground structures that have been built up across time. And then you have developing cities. The amount of ready available underground spaces is already there. Yeah, this challenge of these already existing tunnels, right? The tunnels that are already there as part of the city, right? As part, of, because it's being used in, in urban areas for a whole lot of reasons, subways, transportation, sewage, parking lots, commercial centers. I think to me, uh, from the underground perspective, what's what's interesting about these particular tunnels is, is two things. Number one, from the perspective of those who want to use them, there's no digging involved. So there's no need to invest a huge amount of resources in, in digging the tunnels, uh, the engineering, the planning, etc. And from the point of view of those who are trying to counter the threats, the mapping, the detection of those tunnels is completely different. You don't need to really detect them because you know they are there. It's easy to get maps of those sewage tunnels or those commercial centers and so on. So I think this is a bit of a different challenge from, let's say, you know, the cross-border tunnels between Israel and Gaza or between Pakistan and India. It's different because because of those two two aspects, right? The digging and the mapping. It's a different challenge, different kind of security assessment, and of course, all of this in the midst of, of civilians being using these tunnels potentially, and maybe also potentially the, the primary victims of, of the use of these tunnels. Now, I know you mentioned that there's a lot of challenges, especially in this intersection of underground and urban. I was wondering if you could cover some of those. I know you go into great detail into them in your book, and it's hard to summarize, but some of these urban underground challenges. Yeah, so there are, there are many challenges, and I, maybe I'll point to, to a few of them. Let's begin with the, with, with the very kind of basic observation that when you need to destroy or neutralize a tunnel that is in the midst or close to a civilian populated area, maybe tunnels that connect between civilian dwellings or when a tunnel opening is located under a kitchen sink, you, you're much more limited in what you can do, right? You cannot deploy your most powerful weapon and blow up the entire tunnel. You're going to have to go with your, you know, uh, on tiptoe in order to kind of like neutralize various segments that you believe are the most problematic of that tunnel. Your job as, you know, when you're trying to counter the threat is going to be much more complicated. The laws of war are going to be a major constraints as well on what you can do, the kind of methods you can use to, to neutralize and destroy. So you also have to keep in mind, for example, that the process of destroying the tunnels could damage water or other types of pipes that are underground in the middle of a city. There are much more limitations, right? The, the possibility of countering 
the threat is going to be becomes almost impossible i want to say now you might also be facing situations where you need to where certain tunnels and we mentioned some of them are used both by fighters and by their families let's say who are trying to hide from you know what's going on above ground which is maybe uh, aerial strikes and, and hostilities more generally so if you suspect that there are a presence of civilians inside the tunnel or near the tunnel these kind of dual use tunnels can be very problematic and i think they'll be uh, i won't i don't want to say untouchable because i don't think that's the case but i think again it's going to be very different from deploying a powerful weapon and burning the caves of of afghanistan maybe in a more general point about the challenges underground meets urban is that generally speaking the consequences of a simple operation that involves the underground cannot be predicted with certainty. So yes, in war, nothing can be predicted with certainty, but when there are tunnels involved, it's all the more difficult, right? The fog of war increases. I call this the unknown factor. You just don't know really where the tunnel goes. You don't know how many stories or arteries or precise route of the tunnel. You don't know to what extent it connects with civilian infrastructure. And all of this network of interconnected tunnels can be very, very difficult to, to pinpoint. And so any simple operation, even blowing up the opening of a tunnel in a context, in such a context where you have tunnels and you have civilians and you have urban, it's going to be much more difficult for, for a military commander to, to know what is going to be the impact of a given operation. And, and I think here the, the job of the military commander in foreseeing the consequences of an attack are made much more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And it's almost, as you were just briefing all that, I, I had this overwhelming sensation to avoid and bypass which is really funny because that's kind of the urban, you know, old school doctrine of n- nobody wants to fight in, in the urban areas. Of course, avoid and bypass whenever possible. The problem is when it no longer becomes possible to avoid and bypass. And that's, to me, one of the big challenges with the underground is, of course, I'm going to go through all the military decision making that I can on avoiding having to send soldiers underground or avoiding with having to deal with it. But so many scenarios and once you enter this environment, not only can you not avoid it, but how much of an advantage as you were talking about at the beginning of the show about the asymmetric advantage of going underground and what it gives to you when you do that, it's militarily huge advantages and why across time you see it pop up over and over again to either negate a military capability or to give yourself you know, all the advantages of force protection and stealth and you name it. So one thing you mentioned, I know you cover it in your book a lot. You know, I can go through kind of the tactical challenges of standing in front of a tunnel and, and making a decision whether to enter it, whether you know your military culture is to enter or not. Some, I think I've discovered some militaries have a, a culture of, you know, I'm not going down there no matter what you say, but I do need to deal with it versus other militaries like the US military doctrine where basically covers a lot about how to enter and clear a tunnel and the challenges of seeing down there, breathing, navigating, communicating. You know, it's it's such a different environment. But there are and I I find these fascinating and I don't think before I met you I would have even thought about them. Legal and strategic political implications, but legal, like law of land warfare gaps that you have identified with the underground. Can you cover some of those? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I definitely. So, um, you know, let's just take, you know, perhaps one, one interesting issue that I, I think, uh, um, that I think might, might be of interest to, to our listeners. Um, one interesting question is whether it's even legal, right? Lawful to use the underground in war, uh, because the whole idea behind a tunnel is to conceal, is to surprise, is to mislead the enemy. And as we know, perfidy is, is you know, kind of like the, 
the, the, the point where the law says, okay, yes, you can wage war, but there are limits to what you can do and you cannot use perf- perfidy as, as, a, as a means of warfare. And so we could ask the question, for example, right, and this is just one legal challenge among others, but is it, is it even lawful to use a tunnel or is that going too far in misleading your enemy, this unknown factor? Does it take too, you know, does it get out of proportion to a point where we should say, okay, no. And so, you know, that's an interesting legal question that I, that I think perhaps we, 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 can, we can bring up here. So in the early earth, uh, in the early 20th century, it was an interesting question that arose when um, submarines began to, began to, you know, came to be used by some powers. And, um, and, and the, the, the question among the legal community was whether submarines should be allowed or not in war. And as I was examining the question of the legality of tunnel, of tunnel use, um, I, you know, I, was, I, I encountered this question of the same question with respect to submarines. And, and you'll be perhaps surprised to know that the British wanted to ban submarines altogether. Germany disagreed and France, you know, was more in favor of a middle ground. Ultimately, what happened, and we all know this, right, is that that submarine with submarines was accepted as a lawful practice in war. And, you know, the law accepted this kind of invisibility, which is very close to deception, but uh, is still accepted part of war. So this here comes an interesting legal question that uh, uh, that I think ultimately we need to answer by saying, yes, tunnels are not unlawful. But again, I think especially when they come close to civilians, there are certain things that we have to uh, you know, areas where the law has to um, has to 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 accept. For example, let me give you an example: the fact that in most cases a tunnel in war should be regarded as a military objective, right? Uh, it should be one of these things that we that is almost by nature um, a military objective, like a military base, like a weapons uh, ammunition factory or depot. Um, it's also a line of communication, which is also regarded as a military objective. Um, and even by virtue of its location, right, a tunnel is strategic, again, it provides a strategic advantage, and therefore it is a military objective. So yes, um, uh, these are ways in which the law can kind of overcome this, uh, um, these challenges and this uncertainty by, by, you know, putting its foot down and saying, in most cases, you know, tunnels will be regarded as military objectives, civilians should not uh, be inside tunnels, and for the most part, they are not there, but uh, I think it's important to make certain statements about that. And this is kind of the questions that I address in the book, uh, including, you know, proportionality and also the kind of actions that a state can take when it's a victim of a cross-border underground uh, intrusion into its territory. So these are just, you know, a taste of the legal um, legal challenges alongside all the operational challenges that you, um, that you mentioned. No, I love that analogy. And one of the reasons I love it is because it, it breaks the paradigm of, especially an army guy, you know, a land power guy, um, that the underground is just an extension of the ground. Yeah, totally. It kind of goes against, and even, even I, you know, say that I think underground warfare should be uh, regarded as a subset of land warfare. But um, but perhaps, it, you know, understanding this analogy um, is easier when you when you know that if you look for specific information in the law about tunnels, specific kind of like either norms or attention or discussion that would have to do with the legal aspects of underground warfare, what you discover, and this is something I discovered very early on in the process, is that you have essentially nothing. So the only way to make sense, to conceptualize and to try to answer the challenges and the dilemmas is by making analogies, analogies with submarines, analogies with cyber, um, analogies with other types of warfare, even drones, 
in order to little by little shape a legal framework that is more cognizant of the unique nature of this terrain. And because it's not there, um, there was a need to really kind of dig, I want to say, and learn from other parts of, of the law and from other types of tactics. Yeah, absolutely. If you think about naval warfare in general, the whole realm of military forces for surface warfare, ocean surface level versus underground, they're, they're, they're completely different, separate and by you know, miles of not just the environment of, I mean, you can't breathe down there. So I started to think of all these analogies that try to get further to people's mind of, you're talking about going a hundred feet underground. There's so many differences in it. And I think some of this is you know, the experiences that we both had and you've had more of actually entering previous enemy tunnels and the feeling you get while you're underground. And I've done a couple episodes about that, just that psychological, physiological response to it. I also think case studies are, are great and why I love your book again, but I did my own research on US Army specific experiences dealing with extensive amounts of underground warfare. And of course, you're going to go straight to Vietnam as the one of the more recent ones where it was just a, again, you can find it in all battles. And it never went away, but more recent. And the challenge of the enemy's use of the underground and then the responses um, by soldiers and by the military writ large to it, everything from you know, training videos about how to drop a grenade down a tunnel to close it, the use of tear gas, like literally taking a generator and pumping tear gas into a tunnel or dumping tear gas powder down. And the more I looked at that case study, the more I then it started getting political as in the ramifications of all these practices that it had on the U.S. military and the government as it was actually giant debates in Congress on the use of like tear gassing extensively tunnels, but these tunnels are also hospitals. There are also non-combatants down there, but because we can't effectively see, like you just said, all the laws of armed conflict, the, the proportionality, discrimination, you know, all these get, get very challenging. Yeah, it gets very challenging. And, um, and um, in the end of the day, I think it's important to, to clarify here perhaps one thing, which is I don't think we need new laws to handle, you know, the challenges that the underground raises. Um, I think all we need to do is to interpret the law in a way that makes sense. Um, let me give you an example. After Operation Protective Edge, there was a United Nations report that uh, kind of uh, you know, assessed the legality of the actions taken by Israel against Hamas. And, and a major part of that war, of that confrontation, was uh, the tunnels. In fact, it was probably the uh, war where tunnels featured most prominently, I think, in, in, in modern times. And so the United Nations you know, had this commission of inquiry and, you know, they analyzed all of the actions of Israel and, then, you know, they said, oh, and by the way, there were tunnels during that, that operation. And, and I think it's key to understand that this is a totally flawed approach. And that's kind of like what I'm fighting also with my book and, and my work, which is, no, um, if you don't understand how much it changes the operational environment, and if you don't understand how much more complicated it makes things, then you are not in a position to make the legal analysis in the first place, right? So... So I think what I'm arguing for and what I'm advocating is for, I mean, it's not just lawyers, I think decision makers, military commanders, um, there was a big gap on the underground front in general. So it's not, a, it's not a, such a surprise that lawyers would also be um, a bit disconnected from this reality. But I think here what, we, what I'm really saying is that um, by understanding the operational complexity of fighting underground or in an environment where there are tunnels, um, it also makes the application of the law much more complicated. And therefore, it's key to understanding 
the operational complexity. And that's why I really always put the emphasis there because I feel that then even the lawyers will be able to draw their own conclusions. Right? So that's really, that's really important in my view. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I know that that's always, that's always been a major conclusion of yours is that we don't need new laws. And that's usually a question is like, do we need new laws, new conventions, new, new customary law, you name it. And the answer is usually no, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of work to be done. So you mentioned, I know you mentioned Operation Protective Edge, which I have some, some knowledge of, but I also know that this topic of, you know, the challenges of underground warfare has, it always has context, just like any urban warfare has a lot of context to what type of city, what type of mission, what type of operation, political constraints, all this. Same thing, I'm sure, with underground warfare, whether it's how the underground is being used by combatants on both sides or, or you know, one combatant, a non-state actor, backed by a state, everything down to the, which our good friend, the sapper geologist, will, is good to hit us on, on the geological environment, if it's even ripe for tunneling or it's very ripe for, for easy you know, technology and diffusion of information to make tunnels and why you see them you know, advancing and more and more of them showing. But in Israel, there's all of these come into context, but they can be very different in different parts along the border of Israel. And I was wondering if you could cover some of those, the wide range of underground threats and the context to those. Yeah, for sure. You know, Israel is in so many ways and has in so many times in the past been kind of a lab for, um, you know, trends or you know, new methods or new challenges that are that are that that, that modern warfare brings brings about, and and here I think this is the case too, right? So Israel is very much, you know, when you look at Israel, you realize also that the trends that I mentioned perhaps before, and in general, Israel follows these trends. So let me give you an example. Uh, Israel knew that there were tunnels in the Gaza Strip and tunnels inside Lebanon already for um, for more than a decade. Um, so Israel was knew about these tunnels, knew that it was a challenge for troops when they entered Lebanon and when they entered Gaza. But the trend is, and this is right across the world, is that we are moving from tunnels that are dug on the territory of a single state to, to cross-border tunnels. And this is exactly what happened in Israel, right? From the tunnels inside Gaza and inside Lebanon, the tunnels moved to be cross-border between Gaza and Israel and between Lebanon and Israel. Um, and I think here it's important to, to point out that Tunnel warfare is obviously not just an Israeli problem, it's a global problem, but it's also not an existential threat for states. Um, states tend to be very concerned about underground threats because they are invisible, because they are hard to detect, and for a whole lot of reasons. But clearly, this is not an existential matter, not for Israel and not uh, for the United States and not for any other state, I believe. But um, it does require attention and it requires time and it requires resources and it requires R&D. And, and it took Israel some time, some people said it took too long, <laughs> to realize this. And Operation Protective Edge that we mentioned before in the summer of 2014, uh, you know, confrontation between Hamas and Israel, um, it very much served as a wake-up call, I think, in this respect for, for Israel to understand that this was not a tactical matter, but it was also a strategic matter. And um, and that these the, the, these were popping up and they they were not going away and they are becoming more prominent and in protective edge they were really at the center of the confrontation. So 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 yes, Israel is now facing these kind of cross border threats both both at its border with Gaza and at its, with its border with Lebanon, but the two are very different. They are both underground, but again, it goes back to this idea that the, that the threat is really 
takes di different forms, take many different forms. And if you look at the tunnels uh, dug by Hamas, and, and I actually went down in a, in a tunnels, in both types of tunnels, they are very different. When you look at the Hamas tunnels, they are less sophisticated. They are really about digging, about digging in, in relatively soft soil and, um, and creating passageways. But when you look at the Hezbollah tunnels at the Lebanese border, and you know those as well, you know that it's no longer about digging. This is really about excavating. It's about excavating hard rock. And you take full measure when you are there of the motivation that is behind the whole underground enterprise, the project of the subterranean, and also its appeal. Because if it weren't so appealing, then what could possibly justify the amount of investment and hard work that it takes to excavate hard rock with a cylinder? So it's it's hard to understand it, and you and you see, um, but you understand it when you're there, um, and so. So Israel is a lab, and maybe I want to say one more last thing here. I think there's there's many ways in which Israel has upped its its game in recent years by you know training special units, by um, developing technology, and so on and so forth. But there was one um, important point that needs to be mentioned: an operation that I think will be studied in you know for years to come uh, by many states, and that is Operation Northern Shield. This is the operation in December 2018. Uh, two years ago, when Israel uncovered for the first time, actually it acknowledged for the first time, the existence of cross-border tunnels at its Lebanese border. Um, and it uncovered them. But instead of uncovering them in the middle of a war with Hezbollah, which is potentially what some people would have wanted, it initiated an operation while there was no war and no active hostilities. And it took the time to station its soldiers at the border after narrowing down a certain area where it suspected the presence of tunnel, tunnels and it put its soldiers there, the IDF soldiers, they sat at the border and they spent five weeks trying to detect tunnels that were suspected. And in five weeks, believe it or not, they discovered, I want to say only, but it's already a lot, six cross-border tunnels dug by Hezbollah. So this operation will be taught and studied because it's the first time in the history of tunnel warfare that an anti-tunnel operation was undertaken outside active hostilities. And it shows the long and painful work that detecting tunnels uh, you know, entails. It's also interesting because this operation was, was built around two phases. The first phase was detection. The second phase was neutralization. And so, so this is also interesting you know, for those who, who want to understand how best to handle underground threats. But ultimately, it's, um, it's an incredible precedent and it's an incredible achievement uh, that Israel uh, managed to do this. Um, so I think uh, this tells us also a lot about um, even when you have technology, um, it, it's not easy, right? And the technology that was used in Gaza could not be uh, applied uh, you know, wholesale to the situation in Lebanon. Um, these are different types of soil, different types of tunnels. If I just have one thing to, to, to conclude with is that I think the Hezbollah tunnels are also different from the Hamas tunnels because they're also very similar to the ones dug by North Korea. Um, they, this is what they, if you look at this, if you take a historical kind of horizontal view of, of tunnel warfare, I think this is what they, what they look like, both physically in terms of their feature, but also in terms of the strategy behind it, the, the, the large-scale invasion of enemy territory. I think that's an important point. And, you know, I've only been in the 
the Hezbollah tunnel in the north. And like you said, it was, you immediately, as you see that they dug through basically solid rock with a, you know, a dinner plate looking cylinder and the number of days and hours that investment takes, but also the amount of technology or information. And I think that's an important point you talk about is the diffusion of information. Tunneling activities used to be a specialty of even a military specialty and miners use a lot of civilian miners to do even military tunneling in different wars. But there's been a spread. And I think that's something very important for me because like you said, it, digging through solid rock is a lot different than digging through soil that's easier and the amount of expertise and the workforce you need is completely different. Can you talk about that? Well, how you've seen that diffusion amplify different, especially for us, your non-state actors quickly being able to figure out how to do digging and then you can see it, it just explode. Yeah. Well, you know, I, first of all, I think the resemblance between the Hezbollah and the North Korean channels already tells us a little bit about diffusion. But I think there's another little, I mean, little, it's not little, but it's in, there's an incident that an operation that took place in the Syrian war, in the earlier stages of the Syrian war in 2014, where uh, the rebels at the time, they wanted to, um, they wanted to attack Assad's uh, forces and they had identified the Carlton Hotel in Aleppo as a potential uh, target. So they, they dug a very basic tunnel. Uh, I mean, it's, it was 100 meters long and it took, you know, more than 30 days to build. But they used it to to detonate remotely explosives under this uh, Carlton Hotel, and thereby they killed 40 Assad uh, forces. And it was a very, very successful operation, which went viral. It, it was, again, you know, taking a tactic from World War One and, you know, using it in a very contemporary confrontation. And so the mastermind of this operation was interviewed, and he was asked, so how did you get the idea of using tunnels here in Syria? And he proudly responded that um, he got his idea, the idea from his uh, brothers in Gaza. So, so I think it's clear, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, in our conversation, that that part of what is new here is that the groups uh, Hamas is talking to the rebels in Syria and North Korea is somehow getting the information to Hezbollah. So we don't have, you know, we don't have um, hard hard rock evidence of that, but we have. We see that how this is happening, and it, and it tells us something about how the tactic is also evolving. And I think, you know, this in Syria, ultimately, tunnels played a major role um, in the war, and the innovation, like I said, and the and the creativity was 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 fu- fundamental. And I, and I think a lot of knowledge was gained as part of the Syrian war on all sides as to the use of underground warfare. And this also should help us identify future trends when we're talking about law enforcement, and the use of existing underground infrastructure. I think once someone experiences in Syria, let's say, the kind of uh, appeal and advantage that you can gain from the underground, and if such a fighter makes his way or her way back to European countries, to Canada, um, they're taking all that knowledge with them. So, you know, I think we need to continue to look at what's at this diffusion patterns and think to ourselves, what is going to happen next? What are we likely to see in five years and 10 years? Is the underground going to go away? And I really don't think it's going to go away. I think on the contrary, we're going to see more innovation. One of the things that we're likely to see, for example, is, um, is um, some kind of um, conflation or bringing together of the worlds of maritime warfare and, um, 
and and um, and underground warfare. So tunnels getting into water or the ocean floor being used um, for you know in ways that are similar to how the underground is being used. I mean, you know, there are many ways in which this could be done, and we can talk about it more. But ultimately, we get to continue constantly asking ourselves what is next. Um, and, the dif- and looking at the diffusion patterns is helpful in that respect, definitely. You actually made me think of the actual Russian experiences from Syria and what they took from it. Of course, you, you had to ask them what exactly they took from it, but we know that they rotated most of their general officers and most of their senior officers through Syria as a your proving ground for preparing for the character of warfare, everything from robotics to drones to, I have to assume, the extensive use in underground, both as offensive and defensive capabilities. Yes, although I tend not to look at it as offensive and defensive capabilities and more as different kind of purposes, different kinds of tunnels, um, because ultimately when you have a tunnel, um, and I like this sentence, a tunnel is a tunnel is a tunnel, you can use it for all sorts of different uh, purposes, right? And this is why, by the way, the United States, uh, even though this is kind of off topic, but not really because the United States at its border with Mexico has loads of tunnels. And this has actually helped the United States in many ways develop capabilities in this field. So those are smuggling tunnels, but because they are cross-border tunnels, they are also a security threat. Um, so, so yes, offensive and defensive, but at the same time, uh, once you have a tunnel, it can be repurposed, it can be used later on. If you don't eliminate it, it can be used later on, it can be inherited by different factions and used for different purposes um, later on. So, so, so let's not forget that, right? It's not, um, I, I think ultimately, um, and we've seen this, by the way, between uh, Gaza and Egypt. It was used for smuggling of goods, uh, those tunnels, and then eventually they were used for smuggling on weapons, and eventually they were used uh, in order to kidnap an Israeli soldier. So, again, different ways in which tunnels can be used, and um, we got to uh, you know, always be on the lookout for, for, for changes there as well. Absolutely. I'm even studying the use of the underground in warfare is a fascinating topic, and you know, I like the, to study the tunnel, tunnel bombing aspect of it, which goes back to medieval times. But yeah, illicit you know, criminal activities, the running of illicit economies, you name it, across the world. So I think it really brings me to my final topic, which is, I think we both agree that underground warfare is important. We probably both agree that it's understudied, under-researched, or even under-prioritized by states and their military forces. Let's, I'll be that bold. What do you recommend that we and others do about it? Well, first of all, I do agree. I mean, it's definitely under research. It's there's definitely not enough being done, and it's under prioritized. I, I, I'm totally with you on that. But nevertheless, having followed this topic since you know 2013, late 2013, more or less, I have to say we've made a lot of progress. I mean, when I mean we is the scholarly community as well as the practitioners. I think ISIS, to some extent, acted as a trigger. Perhaps also the warming up of the rhetoric with North Korea on the part of the United States. I mean, the United States did come out with some training unit um, circular uh, a few years ago. Generally, I think the field is getting more attention. We have created, as part of our joint efforts, the International Working Group on Subterranean Warfare, we have created a community of people who in the past didn't even know of each other and who are sharing information, who are together raising awareness, including this podcast, by the way. So so we see a whole lot of things that are happening. We see DARPA with the subterranean challenge, I think, making huge strides uh, on this in this field. Even the Underminer project is, is very significant, in my view, in kind of helping states reconquer or reown a terrain that they have 
essentially relinquished to the advantage of their opponent. So ultimately, a lot is being done and we should continue in that direction. I want to say that if I had perhaps a call for action, it would be that's for states to, to build a strategy that includes all sorts of elements from detection and mapping to neutralizing tunnels, but also prevention and monitoring. And perhaps even more importantly, and this is an area where I'm not sure how much progress we have actually made, and that is cooperation. There used to be almost no sharing of information and cooperation on underground threats and underground, the kind of methods that were used to counter, to detect, the kind of weapons, the kind of equipment, the kind of challenges. I think we have done more on that. I think there's more going on. But I think this is truly key to to overcoming and to also identifying the future trends. Because if a state notices something, shares it with another state, then that helps, of course, in thinking about the future of war. I think we should be careful with great power competition, which could cause a setback here, I think. Because we have seen progress in the last I want to say three years. And if we if we go back to a world where we talk about great power competition, we focus on technology and we forget that the future of warfare is an all in technology and all high tech, that low tech is also there. And oftentimes it causes, it, it, it can be draining. So let's not forget that. Um, I, I think that's, that's critical. And, and, you know, I think also militaries should not hesitate. I think underground is also an area where you, you know, you might want to bring an expert when you're faced with a, some kind of dilemma that regards the underground, kind of like you would bring in an expert on cyber. It's one of those fields where the expertise might be very beneficial. Like just a, you know, a little hint, a little tip um, as, as, as states are planning operation or are facing challenges. I think states should also secure their critical infrastructure, should secure their military bases. Um, you know, as you say, looking down, um, is something that I definitely uh, uh, recommend. But mostly, I mean, I want to end on a positive note because I think states are training soldiers more for underground. They are also building training facilities more. So hopefully what we've seen in recent years continues and it doesn't end with a shift of the priorities towards great power competition. I agree uh, 100%. You can count me as part of that effort, as you know, to continue the research and the emphasis of it. Uh, I also agree. I've seen huge strides in recent years, and we just have to keep up our communication about how this does, even in the great power competition, as you know, North Korea, China, Russia, you name it, the underground, it's there. Preparing our institutions for that, you're developing experts is a technique. You're continuing this line of research and the international working group is huge in that. So I, I really appreciate, I think it's a fascinating topic, uh, as you know, and I'll keep keep working on it with you and the group. Uh, really appreciate having you on the podcast. Thank you. That was, that was a wonderful conversation. I know um, you've done a, really an amazing job also in kind of pushing this issue forward and in uh, advising and writing. And so I think this uh, is a force multiplier, right? In the end, the more we are, and the more research there is and the more discussion there is of, of this and, and keeping in mind that the technology is not everything and that we there's a lot going on here with intelligence and with research and with sharing of information. I know you agree and I think that's the key. So that's my call for action. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Daphne. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. 
You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.